Hello everyone, thank you for coming today. I'm Brianna Reese and I'm a Senior Law and Society major at Philadelphia University. I'm the student director of the Arlen Specter Center. Today we have a special guest, a student at Philadelphia University who is also in Law and Society. Victoria here today to talk about campus sexual assaults. At this time, I'll turn it over to Victoria. Hi, I'm Victoria Anthony. I am a first year Law and Society major. Um, I really wanted to do this ground table because I feel like sexual assault is a big issue, especially on college campuses. Uh, hi, I'm Brittany. I'm a physician's assistant major, first year. My name is Maria. I'm a third year student. I'm Josh Snicker. I'm a professor in the communications program, also the director of the communication program. Colin Murphy, also uh, I'm a communications major. Hi, I'm Emily, um, third year PA. I'm Rachel, I'm also a third year physician assistant student. My name is Misty, I'm also a third year physician assistant student. Rachel, also a third year PA student. Jasmine, also a third year PA student. So um, I just wanted to start the roundtable off by defining sexual assault. So sexual assault defined by the university is any sexual contact that is manipulated, coerced, or forced on a person. Um, it can be anything that includes hugging, kissing, touching, oral sex, or intercourse. So with knowing the definition, um, I wanted to pose a scenario. Um, if a man and a woman are both drunk, they go back to his place and they engage in sexual contact. Uh, sexual contact. Is it sexual assault? If so, on whom? Is it sexual? Uh, this is Maria speaking. So they go, they're both drunk, they're at his place. They're both drunk and they're at his place. Is it sexual assault? Um, see, well, that's the blur line, because you never know what's happening, which is why in a lot of cases in court, it is that blur line. And we're like, well, whose fault is it? Who um, was initiating the contact? And like, what was happening? A lot of the times, we're like, were they both drunk? Was only one person drunk? Because when there's only one person, then you can kind of tell the scenario is different. Right? Yeah, the scenario yeah. becomes slightly more clear that somebody's intoxicated and cannot give full consent. But in this scenario, because both are not are not aware of what's happening, it's kind of very hard to like pinpoint like what was this person's fault. So I don't know. Any other comments on that? Did they agree to have sex before they got drunk? Both of them agreed. They after they were intoxicated. Yes, yeah. after they were intoxicated. After they were intoxicated. Is this still sexual assault? Um, so after doing some research, um, a professor at the Brooklyn Law School stated that um, if people are drinking, charges often can be filed against the person who started it. So even though they are both drunk and neither of them can consent, um, charges can be brought against the person who started it. Um, another scenario is um, a man is drinking and is not drinking, but he's buying a woman drinks. Go back to his place, is that sexual assault? I think so, because she's inebriated. This is Colin. I don't think that she, uh, she's under the influence and he's not. He has a position of control over that situation. So, yeah, I mean, Miss Victoria, personally, I think that that is what sexual assault is. I mean, and in most cases on college campuses, they are both drunk, but, um, or under the influence of something, but then one being under the influence and the other one not, I feel is um, definitely sexual assault. Let me raise something for the panel, step away. But doesn't she have the responsibility of taking care of herself? There are those who may say, hey, nobody forced. It's not a roofie situation. You know, she took the drinks, she took them voluntarily. Doesn't she have a responsibility in this? So we have everyone on the le my left side is shaking their heads, but that can't be seen on the radio. So we'll always start <laughs> with you, um, with your name. This is Jasmine. I, I agree that the woman does have responsibility for her own actions, especially since it's not a roofie situation. Um, she can always say no to drinking, and you know, at the end of the day, she doesn't have to go home with him. So I guess I wouldn't consider that sexual assault in a way. Even though he is buying her drinks, she is responsible for 
clarifying question in the first scenario, you said that they both clearly consented. You didn't indicate in the second scenario if they both clearly consented or not. They both consented. Okay, so it's simple. But she was intoxicated. Sure. Okay. Did she, this is Rachel, did she consent before she started drinking? Like, did she make her intentions known to him before she started No, drinking? after she started drinking. After she started drinking? Yes. Well, then I think that maybe she could have been more easily coerced after she started drinking. So maybe if she's not already in that mindset, it's definitely easy for her to change her mindset by the time she starts drinking. So then, yes. This is Misty. Um, I know we were talking about her responsibility for taking care of herself, but I think he also has the responsibility to not try and get a woman to come back with him when she was clearly under the influence. I don't think she has the ability at that point to consent. Had no guys comment. Yeah, guys. What do you guys in the room. Colin was the first one to comment. <laughs> <laughs> You're an old guy. Let's. You might like me. How about have some of the uh, male students here? How about you? Give me your name. Uh, I'm Justin. Uh, so the situation was the man was buying her drinks and he wasn't drinking. I think that is a way of taking advantage of someone because they obviously like Colin. Uh, your name is Colin, right? Yeah. Colin said how the guy is kind of in a position, more of a position of power than he could have been initially without them both drinking. So I think it is a tactic that uh, not just guys, but maybe even girls or whoever in general could use in order to sexually assault someone. This gentleman over there. Um, my name is Dylan. I do not think that it's so much of a sexual assault situation. I agree with what Justin is saying there. However, she had the power to say no. Um, although it is kind of a, I guess like a trick if by some guys maybe he was trying to trick her by buying her drinks. But I think that in most cases, or maybe, I don't know, statistics, he was just being a nice guy and buying her drinks. Um, I don't know, I can see, I can see both ways. should take responsibility for herself and know when to say no. Um, I do think that he was using that as a tool to manipulate her and get what he essentially wanted from her. This is Henry. Um, I, I think there's a lot of scenarios that you presented the two. Um, rarely ever is sexual assault very black and white, very clear. Uh, it is usually mired in a lot of details. So the things I would be asking is, well, first of all, is the reason why he's not drinking, is he an alcoholic and he's not allowed to drink? Is it she's having two glasses of wine or is he giving her shots? Do they have a long-term relationship? Do they understand their relationship with each other? Have they just met? Um, did she, um, do they have a long-staying sexual relationship? Um, or don't they? I mean, I guess when, when, whenever you look at sexual assault, regardless of the age other than minors, which is a whole different uh, realm, I think you have to ask all these other questions that go into it because sometimes it can be clearly seen as, no, this wasn't, and when you really dig, dig down, it really was. And in other cases, it seems so clear, without question, for the uh, person couldn't give consent. Consent is a really, foggy line also um, about they've been drinking, but are they legally intoxicated? Um, have they been drinking, but they've been drinking one drink every hour? Um, their metabolic rate, they, um, they're processing it. You can actually get this personal, and I'm sorry to go here, is a woman having her period because the female body digests alcohol in a different way when they're having their period. It, there's all these factors that have to go into it when, when concerned, because you were talking about two people's lives. No matter what happens, nobody walks out good in this. 
Um, so you always need to make sure that you have all the facts in order to be able to, to start to determine where, where a person is on this. And I, only, I wasn't going to say a word, except I, I think if we're going to have this discussion, people need to start having the, the, the critical thinking in is what is going on, because quite frankly, what I usually see is people defaulting to, well, they couldn't because they're in a long-term relationship. Um, and then they just say it couldn't be. People need to drill down and start thinking well, analytically. You bring up an interesting thing, which I want Vicki's opinion on everybody else. Mm -hmm. The fact that someone is in a long-term relationship, yes. let's say it's a sexual long-term relationship, does that mean consent is applied, implied, yeah. or point. not? I mean, when say <clears throat> you've been dating a guy or a girl, it goes both ways, as, as we know, and the person says no that night, and you push them, saying, come on, come on, come on, no, come on, come on, come on, all right. Okay, in that situation, and we'll throw out the drugs and the alcohol and all that. That's right. Okay, long term, five months. Does it make a difference if it's a guy or a girl in this scenario, by the way, in your minds? And do you think that that is sexual assault? So what do you think, right? Um, so this is Victoria. Um, well, when you go back and look to the original definition provided by the university, it does say uh, coercion. So saying, come on, come on, come on, um, and finally getting a yes answer does fall under the university standards of sexual assault. Um, I think if somebody says no, it doesn't mean that you should keep trying in hopes of getting a yes. If they say no, then you need to stop. Does anyone disagree with that? I once heard in a class, see, I'm doing that now. I once heard a student say, in a class of males, said, oh, come on, women always play that game. Because they always want to be, this is his words, the good girl who doesn't automatically consent, and then we all know they're playing the game, his words, and then you have to push them a little because they want us to do that. And once we do that, she consents. It's all part of that little dance that everyone's doing. And that's, that was what he said. What do you think? See, Brianna's smiling over there. What do you think? Is that sexual assault? Whipped out on that. <laughs> okay. um, this is Maria speaking. I think that's a bit childish. I feel like two people that want to have, want to be intimate with each other, obviously should be able to be mature enough to know exactly what the consequences and the conversation that goes behind it. Like you sit down with one person, and you're like, okay, we're cool, we're doing this. If now I say no, there's absolutely zero reason for you to keep going because I'm an adult and you're an adult, we're talking about adults here, that my answer should be very clear to you as an adult and vice versa. So if we are gonna act childish, then yes, things like that will happen. The pushing, the, the dancing around, the unnecessary dancing around. It should not have to be, you should not have to second yes the person. If then they're like, okay, you know what, yes, I actually do really wanna do this, that's a different story. Going. But you can't, that dancing around, it's childish. And people that have sex should, or are intimate in any way, should be able to see it in an adult point of view. Any other, anyone else have something to say? Is it sexual assault in the social? What do you think, Colin? Um, I think the context is what have to look at um, if the if they were in a long-term relationship and they had previous sexual encounters like this and then all of a sudden the exact same type of sexual encounter occurs and now um, it's being articulated as sexual assault that certainly changes things because um, I think a lot of you know coerced sexual activity today occurs in a repetitive cycle over a long period of time with different expectations from both people. Um, and with that, in, in light of that, I, I, always, I often wonder what it has to come to for sexual assault to like, start to get reported or um, when, what that 
for somebody to say that, you know, this is an issue I need to bring to somebody else. Because what I see is, you know, a lot of like personal drama around the fact that they want to go back to the same sexual encounter, but they do not like what happens afterward. So. This is Jasmine. Um, I feel like way too many times women feel obligated to kind of please their man, in a sense, like if they are in a long-term situation. So I feel like they would think an encounter in that aspect would be okay because they're in a relationship. So it's like, you know, I agree to be in a relationship with you that comes with sex type of thing. So I feel like that would be why they wouldn't report it because they wouldn't see it in that type of negative light, in my opinion. This is Julie. Um, I think no matter like if you're in a relationship or not, I think like you need to again look at the context of it. Was this relationship like was it getting to that manipulative point? Like what other things were happening in the relationship? Were they fighting constantly? Were she complaining to her girlfriend that her her boyfriend wasn't treating her right, and then all of a sudden it led to this point where she didn't want to have sex with him, then he forced her to. Then I think that's a context of moving into sexual assault. Um, so this is um, just a big problem across the country, but like I said, more more specifically on college campuses. Um, according to the U.S. Um, Bureau of Justice Statistics, one in five women will be sexually assaulted in college, and one in 16 men will be sexually assaulted. Um, it is believed that only 15 to 35 percent report these cases, so that's a lot that go unreported. Um, and underreportings happen for a countless number of reasons. Reasons like they don't want people to know, like their family, their friends. Um, they don't want the victim, I mean the offender, to do anything more to them. Um, they feel like who they're going to tell isn't going to listen to them, or it could have happened before, and they could have told somebody, um, and they could have been ignored. And I think that's also a big part as to why sexual assaults go unreported. I wrote a research paper on this last semester and um, a associate professor at Wesleyan University um, said that an administrator's first job is to protect the university. So the uni university is selling a brand essentially. So if there was something like a sexual assault reputation to go on that university, it could hurt the university as that, whether it be um, the government stepping in with like Title IX stuff, um, whether that could be having the police involved, opening investigations, which is gonna shine light onto the university and then other things may uncover. I just think when I saw that, I was shocked as to the fact that sometimes, I mean, probably not here as much as bigger schools, um, where it happens more, um, I just think that it's, scary to think that some people do believe that an administrator's first job is to protect the university rather than the victim of this crime. There was a deep breath taken by the entire panel after that, so you just have to illustrate that. Um, Maria, your reaction? Yeah. Yeah, that's not cool. Because <laughs> you would, I'm trying to see if the first thing when you said that was like, Oh my God, this parent is ch sending their child away to school. Like, that's what I thought. These parents are sending their kids to school to get an education, hoping this is a safe environment, um, hoping nothing happens to them. And that worry as a parent, I'm not a parent myself, but I, like, I bet a lot of parents do stay up all night making sure like their kids are safe. And when you hear that the administration's first job is to make sure the university's reputation is top-notch and not worry about its students, it puts me, as a parent, it does not put me at ease, thinking that nobody will actually care about my child if something does happen to them. Sorry, this is Casey. Um, I just wanted to add, like, yeah, that's a scary thought, but you would hope that the administrators would want to shut down the sexual assault so that people can feel safe sending their kids there, and that should be their brand. Like, we stop sexual assaults from being on this campus, we take them seriously, and that's how colleges need to rebrand in the future, not just hide it away. Yeah. 
ultimately like, being found responsible for covering up sexual assaults is a far, far deeper hit to your university's credibility. So I think that even assuming uh, the worst, which I think can be the case, but I don't think is always the case. I mean, I think that even thinking strategically, you have a vested interest in it. Even if all, your only goal is to protect the university's brand, I mean, thinking about what that brand will look like if it comes out that covering up sexual assaults to protect the university's brand is ultimately short-sighted at best and criminally negligent at worst. So I think there's that element as well. This is Patrick. There's two things to consider when you're thinking about reporting. Um, one is the Cleary Act, um, which was enacted in 1990 um, after the murder of Jean Cleary, who was named after. Um, and that is a responsibility to the public as well as the institution to make sure that these notices do get out. So for instance, when all of you get notices on your campus email about a crime in the area immediate to Philadelphia University, that's a part of that act. So that is why you are getting those notifications because the university has a duty and a responsibility to inform you immediately upon these types of criminal activities happening on campus. Um, and there is a stiff penalty institutions that do not report or underreport their statistics and of course you can look at any number of colleges specifically related to athletics where these things do backfire immediately um, and become in the public eye so you do have things that are protecting you and that are in place and these are statistics that any family member could find on any institution for any given year just raising it but there are significant cases of cover-ups in many universities, despite the Clary Act. Um, Jameis Winston. Yeah, Jameis. Anybody James watch football? Anybody know Jameis Winston? Anybody know what happened with him? Why don't you tell us? Um, so Jameis Winston was a football player. I'm not sure what university. Florida State. Florida State. He was a very good football player for Florida State. Um, he sexually assaulted multiple women. I believe there was at least two in the documentary I watched about it, and um, the second woman actually came forward and she told the administration about what had happened um, and what he had done. They opened up an investigation um, and advised her not to go to the police, that they wanted to do their own investigation. Um, what happened in the end was nothing. Jameis Winston is now was number one um, draft pick of 2015 NFL draft, and now he is playing in the NFL. It's, you know, it's just like the Brock Turner case. It seems that here I feel safer, um, just because this isn't a big athletic school. I mean, we have, you know, athletic department, but it's not all about the athletes. You know, when you have big schools and you're giving a full ride to somebody who's gonna make your name stand out, that's more important to, like, feel like that their name and their athletic department is more important than their students. Let's not forget the money that somebody like Jameis Winston could bring into the university through bowl games and endorsements and so forth. So there's that conflict of interest. So getting back to what you said, um, it's reported. Um, I think that's, op that's an optimistic type of uh, approach. Some universities do a great job, some don't. Um, I could, again, Henry, so I worked at Division One, Division Two now, Division Three. Um, athletics, big time, doesn't play into it. I've seen as many sexual assaults at small Division Three schools as I have at, and I was at a major Division One institution. Um, if athletics plays into it, because it draws more people in and there's, and there's a lot more alcohol usually around athletics, they get a lot of the attention. The Baylor case actually is a great example of covering up and a president lost his job and an athletic director and a Title IX person. I mean, it, it does go both ways. I agree, Philadelphia University, I think, is a safer community. So if, if anybody in this room, I would. I, believe that and I've only been here five months. But the reason why I believe it is a safer community is it's a community value. It's not about the people being uh, following reading the statistics or that we're great at reporting clearly because I don't think anybody's great at it. I think uh, some places are better than the other. But I find that the institutions that are healthier, and I am 
Um, I'm about to send my daughter off to college, and I, these are the things I do look for, because I, I know way too much information, and I am worried. Um, but I think look to see if the school has a community value. People who are, who are enforcing federal regulations or state regulations, they're checking off the box. We did it. We, you know, we didn't see it. It didn't happen. It, but as opposed to, is it a value of the institution that we won't let something happen like this? We won't ignore it. Uh, we speak up for whether it's an assault on a woman, on a man, long-term relationship just met. I, I think um, I think that's why you all have a great community because I think it's more than just a hey, this is the law tells us we have to do this kind of thing. So just as, a, as an outsider coming in, looking at all of you, I, I just want to follow up your bail remark, just a little historical yeah. comment. Uh, Ken Starr was the president of Baylor University who covered up by ignoring emails and correspondences from women, specific women in particular who continually con uh, contacted him on sexual assault, but he covered it up for the football team. Ken Starr was the guy who prosecuted Bill Clinton for covering up the so-called sexual assault on uh, Monica Lewinsky. So it is kind of funny that the guy who went after Bill Clinton for a consensual sexual relationship um, prosecuted him for that, ends up being thrown out as president of Baylor or resigning yes. um, before he got thrown out, and so he covered up sexual assault. So it's a fun world. I just wanted to point out there from a historical <laughs> point of view. And I think you're right. It's the, the resigned is in, you know, is was in a nice euphemism. He was actually fired but because you're a college president. It doesn't look good, talking about reputation, good to an institution to fire your president for covering up. So they demoted him, and then he decided to, I think he was going to take a, a leave of absence. A leave of absence. Yeah, I mean, it was all the nice political terms that colleges use for how they move on people without saying that they actually fired them. I would just uh, like to follow up, I mean, on some things that we were saying, because I, I think there are actually like some unique challenges of smaller institutions, mm -hmm. or there was other, because I think, I Sure about it, but it was a small liberal arts uh, college, and they were talking about they, they had a sort of like compare statistics. The statistics are almost the exact same. So when you sort of look at the actual rates, uh, very similar. And in fact, that lots of students um, on those campuses felt sort of like unique challenges. First of all, because they're smaller, so it actually might be more disruptive or put them more at risk or perceived risk in the college community to come out in smaller campuses. They assume that it, since it was like a liberal arts college and not a sort of big school fueled by athletics or that sort of stake, that, that, that it wouldn't be an issue there. And so weren't quite as prepared for dealing with it. Um, and and I, yeah, I think that there's a like sense of false security and sort of new challenges of, of smaller schools or there's something that we should be aware of. I think it's very easy to sort of assume, you know, we, there are these high profile lot of media cases and Baylor and familiar with most people that situations at the University of North Carolina, which also had a series of uh, issues of its own, um, and just sort of think that that's, those are the problems. Florida State, these big schools, big athletic schools, those are the problems, and sort of allow us sometimes to think, well, surely it won't, won't happen here, or can't be a problem here, or, you know, it's smaller. And, and I think that that's sort of, I, I agree that my experiences here so far has been that those sort of values and that vigilance is, is a presence, but that's something that has to be continually maintained and not simply taken for granted. And you are correct, there are two small, highly selective, elite, very liberal institutions that have very high sexual assault rates on them in New England. Mm -hmm. uh, one of them is, I think is still under investigation by the federal government. Uh, the other one, they keep <coughs> saying that they're addressing the problem, but then every year something keeps coming up. And again, those are communities under 2,000 undergraduates at least. But the, you know, the common denominator, they both have um, Greek systems, fraternities. Some of them are local, some of them are underground. But again, they have some other subculture that, that is going on that, that they can't get control of, and everybody buys into the, the culture that's going on. That's an excellent thing. So I want to ask Vicki and the panel this. You cite these horrific statistics, okay? What the heck's going on? Like, why, why is this happening? It's not one in a hundred. What would you say? How many women? Uh, one in five on college campuses. So, so if we look in this room, we have about 50 women. So looking at those, that's 10 women in this room, just statistically, who have suffered that. 
and maybe one or two of the guys here. What's going on? Like you're there on the you know there at the university and the younger. What do you think? And I'd like to know what the panel. What is the problem here? That's a really hard question to answer. I've actually spent a lot of time um, looking into why it happens. Um, I don't know why it happens. I don't know why these people feel obligated, like not even obligated, feel like it's okay to, you know do any of that stuff to a woman or to a man, I think that, you know, better prevention needs to be, better ways to prevent this needs to be implemented because I can't figure out why it happens. I, I don't know, I tried, tried looking, thinking of, if I were to do this, why would I do this? And I just don't know how anyone in their right mind would want to do this. But yet again, when you are under the influence, you aren't in your right mind. So I think being under the influence plays a lot into why sexual assault happens. Um, I was gonna say I think the underreporting statistic that we gave is really interesting because I think there's definitely people who are nervous to come forward, but I also think it's an education issue. I think a lot of girls don't think that because a, a guy is buying her drinks at a bar that that could be sexual assault. I don't think a lot of our generation associates that, those two. Um, I also think it's a huge problem that girls feel guilty, like in the, maybe the next day, like, oh, I was dumb, he bought me drinks, and I went home with him. I think it's a kind of like a conversation that needs to be had, and I appreciate the fact that you started the conversation with the definition of the university sexual assault, because personally, I don't know the last time I heard that definition, because it's not something that's like continuously talked about or brought up, or it, like coercion is sexual assault, I think. It's a lack of education and kind of like not associating the fact that sexual assault is what it is. You bring up something that's even more dangerous because Vicky gives the statistics which are horrifying in of itself and you're saying they're false, they're much higher. Mm -hmm. Okay, so which leads us to the question again, what the heck is going on? Why don't you stop and go down there. Go ahead. Um, I think the main um, reason why, um, this is Rachel by the way, that people do sexual assault is a power issue. That they feel the need to like gain control of the situation and they use sex, not necessarily that has sex, but as like a power and manipulation thing. And that like whether the way they grew up they feel insecure or like however they deal with their issues, the way of dealing with it is trying to gain power over someone. And I think that's like the main issue is that we need to further educate, like Kayla was saying, and realize that this is not the way of how you fix your problems. Like don't push what you have on other people we need to deal with it like internally because everyone that is sexually assaulting is usually doing it to get power over the person they're doing it to. Um, this is Missy. I think one of the reasons why things go underreported is because a lot of the reason, a lot of the, there's a lot of issues with the victim fighting backlash from it. And um, one of the institutions that I was once a part of, there was a, a case where this boy, he, was repeatedly going after girls, stalking them and sexually assaulting them, and at the end almost raping one of them. And he was reported to administration, and the victims had to go through a lot of stress having to come to meetings. Um, one of my friends almost got her engagement called off because she had to report the sexual assault and had to go back to her parents, and a lot of the victims were from different cultural backgrounds. And to find out that um, their child had been sexually assaulted when um, their background may require for them to remain pure or something like that can be very difficult and so her engagement almost got called off and this it to a lot of the victims after talking to them they felt that their attempt to report this to administration was almost worthless because his parents weren't even notified nothing nothing happened from it because he was underage and so he wasn't held accountable for his actions this is Austin, and uh, I think a lot of it might come from a little bit those statistics and how they're being reported. Um, so you gave the definition of sexual assault according to Philadelphia, but those statistics might apply to a different definition. Um, so let me give you a very, very big example. If we design, uh, if we define sexual assault as only as unconsensual intercourse, 
those statistics would probably be uh, a lot higher. Because you, if, if you look at the number of people that were reporting sexual assault, or let's do two things, on uh, intercourse and uh, oral or something, um, then you, you're taking into account that, okay, you only have these two things, uh, and, and um, those, those statistics will be a lot lower because you're not taking into account now hugging or kissing or anything like that. But the more terms that you throw in to define sexual assault, the more that statistic will grow uh, and become larger. Because you could throw in eye contact, and now, I mean, that's going to make it 99%. Um, so I think it just depends on how you're defining what it is that you're trying to define, and then those statistics will reflect that definition. No, I agree. And um, I actually looked at our, um, our definition of sexual assault when I visited other webs, other universities' websites, and uh, the definitions are almost identical. They all include everything that ours does include. So I do think, you know, while the hugging and the kissing are less severe, I still do think that it is a part of sexual assault because it is unwanted contact with somebody else. But I don't think it's the most severe part of it. Um, but I do think that I'm honestly not sure if that plays into the statistics. Um, this is Colin. Um, when I think about this university in particular, we don't have the anonymity of a big school. And I think a big part of it is the friends of, you know, one sexual partner that goes into how a, uh, you know, a sexually uh, abusive situation could take place. Um, I know somebody from this school that, you know, she went through therapy and you know had mental breakdowns left or like a couple times as a result of you know her romantic relationship and the friends of his, uh, the friends of that person's partner you know would just say that you know she's psycho and like she's crazy um, but I do notice that you know this concept of gaslighting if anybody's heard of it it's when you constantly reshape or contradict uh, in order to make your somebody feel crazy, um, that like they're not living in the right reality, like they're always being crazy and um, how they understand something. Um, but I think it comes with you know how the friends of one's partner treats that person, always treats that person as you know, a, a function of, of their friend rather than a human in and of themselves. Um, and I do see, like, the biggest thing I worry about on this campus is very, like, a longitudinal gossiping and, uh, like, long-term gaslighting, essentially. Is there any part of it to try to get to the, before you get into prevention, which will be the next thing I don't think he wants to get into, but you mentioned it's a power thing. Does anything have to do with a, a general disrespect of men towards women, uh, feeling of, you said power, or maybe it's more ownership, and being able to dictate terms sexually? Um, this is Maria. Oh, Kayla, right? You mentioned education, and I think that's very important. I don't think we have a healthy sex ed in our schools. I don't think um, teenagers in high school, even middle school, really know how to have a healthy relationship with another person, let alone have a healthy sexual relationship with another person. So I do feel our education system, except particularly in sex ed, I mean, you have schools that don't even teach sex ed. You have people very blindly uh, going in into relationships or sexual relationships, and then you, it just it doesn't add up. They don't know that health, when to ask, well, is this okay? Like, I don't think they have the education of like, well, I should ask you probably if you want to have sex with me, or vice versa, you should ask me if I want. And people, women sometimes don't even know that they have that power to say like, oh, like, I don't feel like doing this, so maybe I should say no. And then in terms of power, again, like feeling that you can do something, 
um, it becomes very complicated with not knowing how the other person feels about it. It is interesting. We learned on times tables. Right. You know that but we have no idea how to deal with people the opposite gender, or by the right. way, be parents. All these things we sort of figure we wing it. You know, at, at home the relationship of how you can uh, with a parent and learn about sex ed it, it can be very awkward and it can be very uncomfortable. But when you're in a classroom setting and you have people of the same age in one room and you have somebody actually teaching people how to respect ultimately the other person, especially the person you're going to be intimate with one day, uh, I think that's very important to know how to do that. And that the fact that schools don't teach sex ed or very briefly touch upon it, you know, we've all seen that Mean Girls movie, Don't Have Sex or You'll Get Pregnant, right? So that whole thing can't scare people from having sex because that's something that they'll do regardless. So you have to just teach people how to communicate with one another. Hi, this is Tracy. <clears throat> um, I kind of wanted to respond to that because I do think, I, I actually have kids in elementary school, which that this is starting to kind of become a part of their world of being educated. But I think when I think about it too is, I think where it gets hard and blurry is that I think the sexual or exploration process of kind of what you like, what you don't like, where you're gonna push yourself, maybe not, boundaries, gets, that's kind of an ongoing thing for men and women, right? So I think what might be okay for you as maybe even a 17-year-old girl might not be okay as you know you develop into a woman or for men, and, and that's probably where this you know blurry or power struggle comes into play, and especially how sex is depicted shades of gray. I mean, that's all about dominance and power and who likes that, who doesn't. I mean, there's a lot of that exploring piece that I think can certainly change over time for people that can also play into this too, you know, definitely. I think that, um, this is Bryn, the over, like, issue is that America's culture towards sex is very different than other nations um, and things like that. So, because of that, it's not in our schools. Because of that, we don't feel comfortable talking to our parents about it and don't have that free-flowing communication. I did go private private school, never once had a class about puberty and like what happens, never once had a sex ed class. And the first, my first education was when I came here and had to take the Haven course freshman year, which we all took um, um, the email like online thing. And I kind of realized through experiences that um, my friends had and like things that we talked about that I was like whoa like what happened to my friend like that was sexual assault and I didn't even it wasn't even in our minds that it could be until I took that course looked at the scenarios and I was like whoa like that happened and maybe it was two years before that and it kind of made me look at things a lot differently and made me look at sexual assault a lot differently and how that communication needs to be open and needs to um, be a part of our education. Uh, this is Maria again. I feel like people are ashamed of having sex. Whether women or men, I feel like there's, well, sometimes more women because a guy usually gets a high five, but the girl, then if she's sexually active, well, instead of, she might get the title of a slut pretty easily. Um, but it, there's that shame that, oh, like I shouldn't tell, like usually women, when asked how many partners they've had, they usually say like three or four less than they actually have. Or men, guys, <laughs> add it up. So I feel like, especially in America, there's that, um, especially as an outsider that I've lived somewhere else, there is that, when you zoom out, there is that shame. As if sex is not something you should talk about at all, as if it's a crime of some sort, and then again, you have people all the time, well, you should have kids. Well, like, if I don't talk about sex and I don't have a good relationship with sex and a healthy one, how am I supposed to even reproduce? So I feel like the shame needs to get cut out of it and people need to start developing that healthy relationship with themselves and with partners eventually. Um, this is Jasmine, sorry. Um, just bouncing off of what Brent said, I had public ed education, so I had sex ed or health class um, starting from elementary school. And 
even that really wasn't that helpful. I mean, elementary school, okay, they were teaching us about deodorant and stuff. You know, that's kind of <laughs> um, But like, when it comes to like middle school and high school, which is when we need to be the most educated because we're going to start being curious, um, you know, most of it was censored. You know, they want to teach us about diseases, which is important, you know. They want to teach us about birth control, which is also important, but mostly it's about abstinence, you know, refraining from sex, you know. They kind of put this notion that sex is bad. So even if you do or don't have a sexual education, like growing up, I feel like you're kind of put in the same position, you know. Like, I feel like the whole education system needs to be changed and revamped and not so censored. Um, this is Sophia, um, bouncing off of what Jasmine said. I completely agree. Like, I have public education too, and it was, it preached a lot about abstinence, um, and it, like, scared us. Like, the things that we did in class, like, scared us. Like, we had a project that we had to research how much it costs for the first year to have a kid and, like, break it down by, like, how much it costs. And then we're like, oh my gosh, this child costs thousands and thousands of dollars. And then, like a week later, we're handed this baby. This baby is the realest thing ever. It like pees, it cries, it's like motion censored, like active, so if you don't hold its head, it cries. It wakes up during the night, like you have to change it, um, you have to give it a bottle, like it's like temperature monitored. So like it's the realest thing to like a baby that you can get. We're handed this thing and it's like, take this baby for three days and go at it. And like that's really scary because your whole life is altered by this kid and it's like, oh my gosh, like if I have sexual like relation with somebody, like this could happen, like, oh my gosh, like if, for, instead of having the baby for three days, I could have it for my life. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, this is Maria. That's a very interesting with kids like because I get sex and kids kinda like like it's never sex and pleasure. Like I'm having sex sex because I'm having fun. It's never like that. It's always like well, like you should only have sex and have kids, and then you should know how to like raise that. And it's again that relationship, like again pleasuring your partner, vice versa. That healthy relationship. It doesn't have to lead to your life together, kids together, and like raising kids. Um, this is Jasmine. I think that notion goes back to like back years and years and years because women were designed to have children. Like that was their job to have kids and right. to take care of the house. And like, that's just what women did. So I feel like, you know, that's kind of how we're taught it. Not about pleasure, but you know, you're gonna have a kid if you do this. Or right. let me show you a whole bunch of pictures of diseases that you can get if you don't wear a condom. <laughs> right. You know, so that's why I feel like education itself just needs to be changed starting from the beginning. Starting in first grade, like kids are learning about stuff. So, I mean, not saying first graders should know about sex, but like just revamping the Rachel, I feel like my I went to public school and I actually thought that our education we had in high school was very beneficial. We had um, a sexual like, abuse center come in and like sit down with everyone. But the problem with it is that it happened when I was in twelfth grade, and relationships start so much earlier. Like I was in ninth grade and I was in like my first relationship, and I would t I could tell things were a little off, but I was like, this must be how relationships are. Like. I must have to listen to this guy, so I'm like, all right, and I went with it. But it wasn't until like 11th or 12th grade where I had this sit-down education where I realized like everything he was doing was wrong. And it's like they are trying, but like it's got to start so much earlier. They they think that like, oh, like she's not gonna be in a relationship or have sex. She's 15 years old, but like that's not the world we live in, and we need to be like aware of that and not like be negatory towards that, but like work with it and like improve on our system that we have now. So my question is. What is the ideal consensual relationship? I especially want to like know like a woman's perspective on that. The ideal, I mean, Victoria, the ideal consensual relationship is when you don't necessarily need to express. It, it's when if somebody says no, then you immediately stop. But if you both want to do it, you don't need to say. You know, if you're in a long-term relationship, you don't need to say, oh, every time, is this what we're gonna do? Are you okay with this? I feel like if somebody's at the point where they're saying no, that's when, you know, it gets into sexual assault. But if 
you've been in this relationship and you've done it before and when you start, you know, to have sexual contact and you both people are going with it, I don't think that that would be looked at as sexual assault. What if you are not in a long so is sex outside of a long-term relationship impossible or always bad? If you don't have a relationship, I think there should be consent, some form of consent. Like, is this okay? You know, or is this what really, like, something, it doesn't need to be like, okay, listen, this is what we're doing, are you okay? But it just needs to be something to say, this is what I want. This is Jasmine. Um, to answer your question, I feel like when you're in a long-term committed relationship, before you even begin to have sex, that you should sit down with your partner and say, you know, okay, we're gonna do this. Like, what preventative, what preventative measures are we going to take? Um, if this happens, like, will you be able to handle it? Like, you have to sit down and have that open communications, like Maria was saying, and I feel like it, that's really important. But then again, on another note, I feel like it's possible to have consensual sex when you're not in a long-term relationship. It's just about that open communication, um, you know, a lot of bad things happen when you're drunk, but like speaking when you're not under the influence of anything, um, it's about communication. That's the most important part. Um, I definitely think that like if you're not like in a long-term relationship, like actions, and maybe you don't have to stop and be like, yes, this is what I want to do right now, but like actions definitely say a lot. Like you, if you're going to start something, you need to be very aware of the person you're with, and if like they're sending you any kind of signal that's like, maybe I don't want this. Like, body language speaks miles. Maybe people might not realize this, but like, if someone's not even looking at you or turning away from you, they probably don't want to be with you. <laughs> you can touch them or coach them as much as you want, but like, that's not okay. And this is Jasmine. Um, I feel like a lot of times people don't read social cues like that too, and that's also an issue. Like. The fact that a woman can turn away from you and a guy thinks of that as, oh, she's playing hard to get. So as, as a little bit older and also I've spent many years in public school as its only education, I, I learned a lot from Dan Savage, uh, thankfully, and I, I think that the whole notion of like Enthusiastic consent is also a possibility. Like even in your framing there, where like when you talk about when you like you have to like record scratch and like have have a talk. Like no, there are, there are ways that you can express consent in ways that are also sexy and pleasurable. And I think that it's it's, it's interesting that even after some of you were just talking about the need for pro-sex framing and education, that you know the notion of the way that express gets consent or consent gets expressed was sort of like interruptive as opposed to something that could be incorporated into the process and then I think that that's something that's important to keep in mind as well. And I think that should be taught too um, in schools like about body language and about understanding social cues in general because a lot of people don't understand them at all not even in like a sexual way but um, and then another thing like Rachel's from um, Pittsburgh I'm from New York and our education systems are completely different so you know, so because she had that sexual abuse class, like my school never talked about that. My school never talked about sexual abuse. Like Sophia said, from the same place, I was given a baby. You know, I was giving a grocery list of baby things <laughs> to calculate like how much a baby was, and she was getting taught about sexual abuse. Like those are two different things. I think there should be like this is Maria. I think there. Um, again, like I get it. Like education is state by state. But when you're trying to educate your people and have your country really like go forward, I think with education specifically, everybody should be on the same page. Like we should all know what two plus two is and not, you know, and that, that's like so absurd, but like other things, everything, even as an economic thing, like if we all move up, then like everything will just ultimately be better for everyone. So I think that's something that we we'll still have not understand that the fact that education is so important and there are countries that a lot of kids don't have that privilege at all, but also understanding that as a nation, especially here in America, especially with our recent events, everybody needs to like start moving the same pace. We're making sure that that's the priority, that we need smart people. And to have smart people, we need a good education system. And we don't have that in place. 
And relating back to the college campus thing, you know, education also comes from your family, but absolutely. mostly the education system. But like in co on college campuses, you know, we're all from different places. Yeah, absolutely. So that also relates to how people understand body language, um, how people feel about sexual assault, how people interpret different things. It's all about it all comes back to education. Let that young lady go there, I have something to say. This is Aaron. Um, just going back to like the high school education that like Brian was talking about, like I came from a public school and I had um, like sexual abuse education, but looking back on it, like one thing that I thought was so distinctive is no one was ever taught like when someone says no, you don't do that. Like no one ever was taught that when a girl tells you no or doesn't want to have any sexual like relationship with you, like you walk away. You know, it was always taught that if you got sexually abused, like go to the guidance counselor, or like these are what you. This is what you can do to go about it. Like if education needs to be implemented, it needs to go back to the basics. Just even as it's like everyone knows, like no means no, but in that context, it needs to be emphasized like a lot more. Let me ask a question because I'm not familiar with the first year class, but are you taught FYS? Are you taught any of these elements about no means no and? all these things that you want to learn. Are you taught that at all? Not, 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 excuse me, not previously, but this year they implemented a class for the new students that like one of their first classes um, is the Title IX class, and they go over what our policy is, and they even go over like what affirmative consent is, not just like, oh, okay, but like actually leaning yes and like being excited about it, kind of like the enthusiasm. So like I think it's definitely getting better here. How could we make it better? Yeah. Well, I, this is Laura, um, and I, I would comment to that that I feel like so I was an FYS instructor this past year, and I feel I was I was appreciative that this was a topic that we covered during a class discussion, but it was a 50-minute class. So I think just like this discussion we're having today, it's really great that we're having this discussion and we're having people involved. But it's a very short time span to cover something that clearly we all there are very varying opinions about. There's 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 lots of different understandings of. There's myths about. There's you know so there's a lot there's a lot more I think that we could be having ongoing conversations. Should it be a class, a one credit class on campus? Uh, is that something you guys would want? Yeah. Um, this is Aisha. I think what the biggest thing is is that the people here in this room care about this issue. But I think we need to focus on the people who aren't actually here, who don't really, who aren't aware of it or don't pay attention to it. Because we all care about this here, but it's the people who aren't here that really need to be need to be focused on because they may be those who are not educated, who maybe are miseducated. Like those are the ones that I feel like really need to be, I guess, taught what is right and what is wrong in terms of consent. Um, this is Brent. I think something that could be beneficial would be peer education in this aspect. Um, I was an FYS peer mentor this last semester, and um, my instructor and I both agreed that for our Title IX class, we did like the formal uh, presentation of things, and then he left, and I talked to the students um, just from like a very personal perspective and being able to relate to them, um, and they took that like a lot better than when there's um, an adult in the room, and it can be just a little awkward of a conversation. So when you are able to have that open communication with someone of your own age. Um, I think that it does come across, it's a little easier to understand and you think that they understand you more. Um, so I think a way to improve that would be maybe that the health center starts um, a peer support group or um, education group for people that go out and make this a part of classes and get the word out there as well. well let me make a suggestion, Ms. Emily, we'll go. Vicki, as you know, Victoria is very interested in this topic. Uh, instead of this talk ending, soon, this talk should continue, but I think it would be a great idea if you have ideas how to improve the situation, like you just had one, and funneling it to our host. And maybe she can make something happen out of this. Um, we do have a, just started today, a women's rights organization on campus. Monica Levins is leading it. Uh, it may, that may be something they want to champion as well. But let's start with that. Let's have ideas come because that sounded like a nice class, but as you said, it's only 50 minutes, and it's far more complicated than that. Uh, it was only one class, yeah. This is Jasmine. Um, I feel like allowing teachers the freedom to um, talk about it for more than one 50-minute class, you know, kind of frame their class how they want to, in a sense, not everything being so structured, like a 
okay, this class you have to talk about um, how to deal with college. This class you have to talk about um, sexual assault. This class you have to talk about, you know, studying, time management, you know, kind of implementing it in different ways. And, and I like that they did talk about that this year because I know when I took FYS, they didn't talk about sexual assault at all. It was kind of just learn how to study, learn how to manage your time, and things of that sort. Vicki, would she give her email to you guys you know, at the end of this, but funnel your ideas, because let's make something happen from, from this uh, talk. And we're kind of running out of time, so Vicki, why don't you just ask the final question? Yeah, so um, um, I think the biggest part um, in helping end sexual assault is taking measures to avoid it. So by educating students, <coughs> rather than just throwing them into the world with no education on what to do, how to do it. Um, and I feel like dealing with cases that are brought to you, so if somebody says, I've been assaulted, you don't shove it under the rug. You actually expose it. And like what was mentioned earlier, you want to be that school that says, we shut down sexual assault rather than we cover up sexual assault. So I feel like that's a big part um, in helping to end sexual assault. I mean. You'll never get it completely ended, but I feel like helping bring awareness to it and showing that it actually is an issue that people like to avoid and not talk about um, is definitely something that needs to be brought to the attention of the people. Um, I want to thank you guys all for coming and talking with us about this issue. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.